Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If this podcast has encouraged, blessed, or challenged you in any way, would you consider supporting the show for as little as five bucks a month? Uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. You can look at the different giving tiers. That's T-I-E-R-S, not T-E-A. RS, although maybe some of my givers do have lots of tears after listening to the show. Anyway, if you want to support the show, you want to give back to Theology in the Raw, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. And if you support the show, uh, you get premium access to premium content in return. It is not just a pure gift. It is somewhat of a transactional gift. You get access to more premium content that only my Patreon supporters have access to, like once a month podcasts, once a month blogs, and other goodies that that come out throughout the year. So again, if you want to support the show, this is a listener-supported podcast, then go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in a Raw. And then I will also be in Richmond, Virginia, New York City, Colorado Springs, Minneapolis um, in the fall, and several other cities that are already lined up in the spring. So we'd love to see you out at one of these events. Again, centerforfaith.com and go to the events link and get um, all the information for all those events. Okay, my guest on the show today is Dr. Michael F. Bird. If you don't know who Michael Bird is, then you need to know who Michael Bird is. And if you've never heard of the name Michael Bird, then I'm super excited for you to listen to this episode. Michael Bird is a... Wow. You know, five years ago, I would say he's quickly becoming... Um, a world-renowned New Testament scholar. I, I would say now he is a world-renowned New Testament scholar. He's written more than uh, 30, or written or edited more than 30 books. He's, I think 20 of those books, at least, are solo books that he's written on his own. Almost all of them are high-powered academic books, and he's only 45 years old. This guy is just a machine, cranking out not just high, a high quantity of theological books, but a very high quality of theological books. And if you resonate with my perspective on scholarship, on the Bible, on theology, on evangelicalism, on just, if, if you're listening to the show, if you're not just starting to listen to the show because some friend told you about it and you're just checking it out, but if you've been an ongoing listener, you probably resonate with a, some or a lot of what I say. If that's you, then you will absolutely resonate with Michael Bird. He is a brother from another mother. We met in Scotland several years ago, back in 2005, I believe, and he's been a good friend uh, from a distance and just a top-notch biblical scholar. The dude is writing, or he just wrote, a comprehensive introduction to the New Testament with N.T. Wright. So it's Michael Bird and N.T. Wright. So if you don't know who Michael Bird is, hopefully you know who N.T. Wright is. So that just tells you that this dude is legit. So we talk about a bunch of stuff. We talk about his, some of his scholarly interests. We talk about um, just New Testament scholarship as a whole. We talk about other more practical things like the American Evangelical Church. We talk about women's ordination and all kinds of stuff. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. I had a great time catching up with my good friend from Melbourne, Australia. So please welcome to the show, the one and only Dr. Michael F. Bird. I am 
live. Um, actually, I'm not live. I'm recorded, recording with my, uh, gosh, good friend, Dr. Michael Bird. And I've got so many stories about Mike Bird. Uh, we go, we got, we actually go way back to the er, my early Aberdeen days. I'm going to say around 2000, maybe five, when you yeah. were teaching at Highland Theological College out on the coast of Loch Ness, <laughs> literally. Around on the shore, you know, right by Loch Ness, and um, you came out to Aberdeen. We hit it off, got our families together. We've been uh, friends from a distance, largely ever since. So, for those who don't know who Mike Bird is, why don't you give an intro to who you are and the kind of work that you're interested in? I'm sure that'll that'll lead to all kinds of other conversations we can chase down. Yeah, my name's Mike Bird. I am Australian. Uh, I'm an Anglican priest, uh, New Testament scholar, and theologian. I write, teach, uh, publish in you know, those areas of biblical studies, and I enjoy hanging out with my friends like Preston Sprinkle, <laughs> and that's pretty much what I do for a living. We, we oh, t- I should say, also at Ridley College. Right, right. And you, so you've been at, uh, you did your PhD in Queensland, then yep. you got hired on directly, if I remember correctly, to Highland in, in Scotland, right? Right right after your PhD? Yep. It, is, it is literally top theological college in the United Kingdom. I mean, geographically, you tend to <laughs> the north of it. Yeah. There is, um, unless they establish the Arthur School of Theology, it's literally the top theological college in the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your audio is fading out. It was great before we hit record. Now it's a little sketchy. Any changes or? Uh, I, haven't, I haven't touched nothing. Okay. Yeah, maybe. Good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, I'm holding forward. So, so my, if I can sum up Mike Bird, I mean, you produce more content than anybody I've probably ever met. Now, as you know, from being in the UK, UK scholars are typically kind of skeptical of, um, t- in particular, Americans who like to write like two books a year. There's so much kind of capitalism wrapped up into that and money and all this stuff. And I remember Simon Gathergill, who, who my advisor and, and a friend of both of ours, you know, he said, my one advice to you is don't overwrite, you know, write a book every five years, maybe, you know. Um, and and I've, I've, I haven't really lived by that, but but I understand the, 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 the concern. Now, long story short, what makes you unique, in my opinion, is that you produce a ton of stuff, but it's so high quality across a diverse spectrum of disciplines. Like you're writing on Paul, you're writing on Jesus, you're doing early church stuff, you're doing theology, biblical theology, systematics even more recently. So I, I don't like, I, I'm ne- I don't know if I know any, but maybe, maybe N.T. Wright, maybe <laughs> who, who produces such high quality with such high or high quantity. That's also high quality. What, how, how do you do that? How, how do you produce such high quality academic books in such high quantity are you i know you don't sleep very much right <laughs> or uh, well i sleep i sleep better than i used to okay I sleep better than i used to i think there's a number of factors uh, the first thing you have to remember is i live inside my head the the external world is just the matrix <laughs> so for me the real world is inside my head and this is just where i come to set people free uh secondly i in that vein, it, it feels such a shame. I've got all these ideas in my head. It, it feels such a shame to keep them all to myself. Hmm. You know, I could be sharing this love and, and what I've learned um, with so many others. Uh, so I guess that's that's part of it. Uh, the, the other thing is, you know, 
when I spent some time in the army and I worked in military intelligence, and one of the things you had you, you develop the skill is to absorb copious amounts of information. You're, you then have to very quickly analyze it, uh, synthesize it, and then disseminate it in a very quick fashion because you know people's lives matter. Okay. You know, yeah. um, based on what you do with with information. So, so I, I learned a skill very quickly of uh, of processing a, a lot of information, analyzing, synthesizing it, and somewhat you know, and then getting it to the people who needed to hear it. And I, I did that for several years. And so, which, which was probably one of the best ways of preparing for a career in research. Hmm. So yeah, that's probably that's probably the thing. And you know, I've I've got wide ranging interests. You know, Jesus, Paul, the early church, the apostolic fathers, the Septuagint, uh, systematics, biblical theology. And I just like you know working and writing in in multiple fields, and I I, I like the idea of being a generalist rather than spending you know yeah. five years working on Luke Acts. Uh, I prefer <laughs> working on a wide spectrum yeah. uh, of areas. Now the danger is you can end up doing that somewhat superficially, yeah. but eventually the knowledge you acquire in all these different areas eventually feeds in altogether. So when you write on someone like Paul, you're doing it with a a much wider and broader perspective, which informs it. Um, it, it, so you've written, I mean, several, gosh, how many books? I mean, you've probably written, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your Wikipedia page, by the way, Mike Bird has a Wikipedia page. I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, not by me, not by me. <laughs> I always wonder that, like, how do, how do people get Wikipedia pages? Just like one of your fans and followers says, I need to, you know, post something here. Um, but how, how many not edited books? Cause you, you know, you've edited a few books. We, we worked on a project together. Um, but you've solo written, you've written books by yourself. I mean, are you up in like the teens, the twenties? How, how many books do you have? You lost track? I, I think all up with edited books, it's about 30, but okay. I think in terms of just books by me, it's about 20. I mean, and again, I can't emphasize enough the difference between writing an academic book versus, you know, compiling a bunch of sermons, like some, you know, and, and, and not to dis detract away from the the need for popular level books okay but to put together a sermon series spin it into a book you know if you have a mega church any publisher is going to say yeah if you got if we can you know sell tens of thousands of copies because you got a big platform we'll publish your book doesn't really matter what it is we'll just publish it because it'll sell and um but to write an academic book i mean takes a ton of again some academic books take five ten years to write you have I think all your books would be considered academic, right? You don't have any like prayer oh, Jabez type books, do you? Some of, some of them would be very textbooky. Okay. Uh, like they meant like for first year seminary students. Um, some of them are obviously a little bit more technical, like a, a commentary on First Ezra is according to Codex Vaticanus. Wait, is that uh, a thing? You actually wrote a book on that? That that's a book you've written? Yeah. <laughs> first yeah. Ezra's. First Ezra's. Can you explain? But my audience might not even know what that even means. Can you unpack that? Yeah, that's a book. That's a book from the Apocrypha. That's basically um, uh, most of Ezra, part of Nehemiah, and a couple of other apocryphal stories that have been thrown together in Greek. And you wrote a commentary on that. Yeah. Who had a gun to your head to force you to write? Oh, well, it was. <laughs> When I was in Scotland, that you know how the universities have to produce these highbrow, um, very academic pieces that nobody reads. Okay. Uh, so while I was in Scotland, I committed to one of those projects. Uh, so uh, again, it's you know for about the fifteen people who care about one Ezra's, 
Uh, <laughs> my, my book is, you know, kind of like the latest thing uh, from oh, about five or six years ago now. Uh, yeah. But for the rest of the English speaking world, it's, it never really happened. I actually dreamed during my PhD, I dreamed of writing a commentary either on the Psalms of Solomon or Pseudophilo. Um, I have since left that dream, although I, I still there's still that that itch that's always there in my, in my heart, even though I've moved on to more kind of in between popular acad- academic level stuff. But um, I, I get it, man. I I, I don't know. Yeah. Just just pursuing pursuing the knowledge, the study of something that might play a tiny sliver in understanding the Bible, but still somebody needs to do that sliver. And I just have so much mad respect for people that are going to do that. I mean, (laughs) Simon Gathergold said, I think we need an, an actual Christian who's an expert in the gospel of Thomas. So he's taught himself Coptic and spent five years studying this and produced a commentary on the gospel of Thomas, and I think that is a small sliver, and yet such a massive, respectable sliver um, that is needed in in, in the church yeah. today. So, uh, yeah, yeah. There, there is something about going through a an ancient text, an ancient Jewish text, Coptic or whatever, and just working through it methodically. You know, at the at the level of its language, its sources, what it's doing, at looking at the various manuscripts in close detail. And then thinking, and, and how does this tell us anything about the history of Judaism or early Christianity? Yeah, uh, that that was the best thing. I mean, from that one Ezra, although it's a you know very technical academic, uh, you know, I, I really did learn a lot about ancient Judaism. I learned a lot about, I learned sure. a lot about ancient manuscripts from doing it, and it, you know, it, it did feed into sort of other things I've done in the future. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I I still look back on my PhD days when we first met and, and how much time I spent lingering in uh, early Jewish literature. I mean, I can't, I, I must have spent, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of hours I spent in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I just, just the other day, I kind of cracked open my, my paperback copy of the two volume, um, yeah. oh, who the Garcia Martinez, Garcia Martinez. Is that? Yeah. Um, and man, the, the notes I took in there, the highlights, the underlines, you would think I was like a convert to, Qumran Judaism, you know, like it was more barked up than my copy of Romans. But I, th- those, those, I don't know, like, like, and some people would say, gosh, why would you spend so much time meditating on that kind of material? And, and, and I don't know if I'd have space for that in my life now, but I have zero regrets of that. Like, that's just, yeah, I learned so much about the New Testament ultimately and Jesus ultimately by truly understanding Jewish material on its own terms, not just as like backdrop material, but mm. actually trying to get inside the head of these. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. the same. I mean, my, my Dead Sea Scrolls, I went through and underlined every reference to Gentiles, Romans. The, yeah. The dreaded kingdom. So, you know, I wanted to know what Jews thought about the fate of Gentiles. I wrote my PhD thesis on Jesus and the Gentiles. So, yeah, I was the same thing. I spent like copious amounts of hours yeah. uh, doing that. I'll tell you what was sad for me. I had this huge chapter on, you know, Gentiles in the Jewish world, what Jews were saying about Gentiles. And I'd, I'd spent like, you know, months working on that chapter, but I had to cut it out of PhD thesis when it got published because there was no room for it. Hmm. And that felt like losing a, a limb, which is why I then resurrected it <laughs> as a separate volume about Jewish history activity in the, in the ancient world. Yeah, so tell us about just... Yeah, briefly. I don't want to go so deep that my audience turns off the podcast. But what, sum up your your 
both your dissertation, your thesis and during your just during your PhD and also that second book that you that you're just referencing. Because that, that's a that's a that's a that's a sub discipline within New Testament studies that 99% yeah. of Christians aren't even aware of. And yet it warrants. Yeah, well, a thesis. Yeah, here's the problem I dealt with. You know, Jesus was Jewish. All of his followers were Jewish. It was a very Jewish movement um, lo located largely in Jerusalem and a bit of Galilee. But within 40 years, it's become pretty much a Gentile religion. This is what Christianity has gone from being a kind of messianic sect to uh, effectively a Gentile religion in the Greco-Roman world. And how do you get from A to B? Now, of course, everyone says, well, it was all the Apostle Paul and all that, and his issues with Gentiles. But what happened at A? What was happening with Jesus that would turn this Jewish restoration movement into a, uh, a religion that would incorporate you know, Romans and Greeks into it? And basically, my thesis was this. Jesus is a prophet of Jewish restoration eschatology. In other words, he came to bring to fulfillment those great promises from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel about the new Exodus, the new Israel, the redemption of God's people. And in that story, you know, a transformed Israel would transform the world. God, God's people, when they were renewed, would be the conduit for the renewal of the world. So that's the basic story that Jesus was part of. Huh. Uh, and you can find that throughout the, uh, the, the Old Testament. And uh, that explains a lot of Jesus's interactions with Gentiles, such as the Syrophoenician woman you get in Mark 7, or the centurion you get in um, Matthew 8, and I believe um, Luke 13, uh, and that type yeah. of thing. So I just went through and tried to explain all that. Uh, that then leads to a sort of a pre a, a, an earlier question, to what extent were Jews trying to convert Gentiles to Judaism? Uh, there was a little bit of it going on, um, you know, every now and again, you get some um, uh, Jews, such as in Josephus' uh, Antiquities, chapter 20, uh, where you get people trying to advocate Judaism to, you know, Gentile kings. Uh, but more often than not, I think the Jews were willing to accept converts. They didn't really aggressively go out and seek them. Uh, so that, that sort of, that there, there, there is a fairly newish proselytizing thrust in the early Christian movement. So you said, so... There, there wasn't a lot of Jewish missionary activity during the Second Temple intertestamental period, or, or was there a little bit? I know Scott well, it McKnight all it, all comes, it all comes down to how you define missionary, uh, but we only have spasmodic references to this happen. Like, you know, Matthew 23, 15, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you, you, cross, you yeah. cross sea and land to make a single convert. And you make him twice the son of hell as yourself. Yeah, yeah. I've always so, wondered that. Like, really? Does that ever happen? A, a Jew? Yeah, well, <laughs> the issue is, is Jesus being hyperbolic? Is he exaggerating something? Uh, are Pharisees trying to convert other Jews to Pharisaism? That's, that's sort of proselyte. Sure. Or is it referring to Pharisees going out trying to actually convert Gentiles to Judaism? Now, we do know of one or two Pharisees that actually did try to convert Gentiles to Judaism. You can read, you know, uh, Josephus' Antiquities, chapter 20, to see, a, to see a story about that. But from what we know of literature, generally, uh, they were not, the Jewish people, and, you know, buried everywhere, were not all that active in doing that. They were quite happy to accept converts, but didn't sort of aggressively go out seeking them. Okay, interesting. Your latest book, which comes out, oh, November 2019, just in time for ETS-SBL, I'm sure. Um, yeah. You co-wrote with N.T. Wright. 
That's insane. So you're you're co-writing uh, a book with N.T. Wright called The New Testament in Its World, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians, which, by the way, I love that title. It's just provocative. It's yeah, raw, the, the, real. The book abbreviates um, NTW. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, so it's done, obviously, because it's coming out in a couple months. Yeah. So um, what was that process like, and how did you get – yeah, how'd you get how'd you get the opportunity to 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 co-write a book with N.T. Wright? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, being asked to co-write a uh, a book with Tom Wright is like being asked to sing a duet with Beyonce. <laughs> you know, you uh, you, you can't say no. Yeah. Even if you can't sing, you can't say no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that book came about because SPCK, as a publisher, said, "Do you have any book ideas you'd like to run past us?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm pretty." busy and pretty full up at the moment. I said, you know, you should get someone to work with Tom Wright and uh, to go through his various writings, work closely with Tom and to construct a New Testament theology based mostly on his life's work and then just sort of supplementing it as need be. And they said, that is a great idea. And hey, hey Mike, why don't you do it? I said, well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've met Tom a couple of times. We, you know, we get on, we get on well, I'm a, I'm a bit of a fanboy. But, you know, Tom may have his own people. He may have his own people. Uh, but they ran the idea past Tom, and uh, he was like, oh, yeah, that sort of, you know, a strange Aussie guy. Hey, he seems all right. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and, and we got underway, and then uh, then Zondervan got on board, um, which huh. meant it went from being like a small sort of black and white book to this all singing, all dancing, uh, incredible <laughs> show. Uh, we've even got, like, two DVDs coming out of the book. There's one which is a church-based curriculum, called the New Testament You Never Knew, which is you know, designed for church groups, uh, for lay people, which is basically just me and Tom traveling around Jerusalem, um, Greece, Rome, talking about the New Testament and that type of thing. And then we're bringing out more of a uh, seminary-based curriculum later down the track. Uh, and it's, yeah. been, it's been a lot of fun, a great adventure. Tom is terrific to work with. Uh, it's a little bit depressing because you just see how wonderfully he writes. Yeah. And uh, and then they're not going to, you know, add my own little thing uh, on the yeah. side or <laughs> my own little marginal gloss here and there. That's yeah. kind of a thing. Uh, but it's, it's, it's great fun. And I, I think we've produced a, a book that will be really valuable for students, for teachers, for pastors, anyone who wants a real comprehensive overview of the new testament uh, in its world yeah i think we'll really benefit from this book well you're you're being humble I, I i'll never forget the uh the ibr conference ibr what does that even stand for internet um what's ibr stand for the uh, institute, for biblical Inst- research. institute for biblical research wait, goodness. Wait, wait, where, where are you being like, like <laughs> what, what's, what's sbl is that the society of baseball league or something this should be gosh darn it so so ibr the uh, institute for biblical research is in my opinion the highest level of evangelical biblical scholarship and what i mean by that is Biblical, a, a society where biblical scholars, people studying the Bible on a high academic level who still believe that Jesus is Lord, that we should preach the gospel, that uh, repentance is necessary for eternal life, so on and so forth. Um, it's kind of a great combination of, well, I, I would say it, it's, a, it's, it's the perfect balance between ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, which typically is very conservative, like 
you know, mm-hmm. not ultra right, but very far right. Um, and society of biblical literature, where you may have a, you know, a Buddhist monk who is also an atheist talking about gender theory in the book of Romans, you know, which is fine. You know, there's a place for that, but IBR kind of blends the academic power of SBL and the, the Christian, <laughs> the Christianity maybe of, of ETS and it's a, it's a happy medium. Anyway, all that to say, IBR has an annual meeting and several years ago, um, they always have one uh, plenary speaker and then somebody who responds to the keynote address. Well, this, this year, N.T. Wright was the keynote speaker and Mike Bird was the respondent. And at that time, obviously, everybody knew who N.T. Wright was. And, and I would say a good percentage knew who you were. But I will never forget, bro. And I'm, I'm saying this and I'm not you're not paying me money, but N.T. Wright gave a talk. It was good. I mean, it was it was N.T. Wright. It's of course, no matter if he just opens his mouth, it's going to be good. You came on and responded and your talk was I hope N.T. Wright's not. I'm pretty sure N.T. Wright's not listening to my podcast. (laughs) If he is, I'll live with that. You were head and shoulders better than he was. I mean, (laughs) you you were precise. You pushed back on him. You were funny. You were I mean, it was so I sat there in awe. I literally was thinking. I know that guy. I was like looking around like <laughs> we we edited a book together. I promise you like I that guy was, a, you know, you lit that room up. I mean, you had to have gotten great responses. I mean, give me just set aside yeah. humility. What were the responses like from that talk? That, that was an incredible talk. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that the most depressing was the most depressing thing was like I was on the podium. Tom finished speaking and I think about 10 percent of the people got up and walked out. <laughs> they so missed that's it. The first thing I was encountering. Uh <laughs> That uh, I was, I was, I was kind of like the uh, the after dinner mince for a lot of people. Um, but no, I I, I kind of I did my thing, uh, which yeah, well, I'm you know we both know Preston. I'm primarily a comedian. Uh, <laughs> New Testament studies is just my medium. Um, so I was able to do about fifteen minutes of stand up and intersperse with a bit of um, biblical studies and theological dialogue with Tom Wright, which was, which was a lot of fun. But yeah, a lot of people said that, you know, that was terrific. That was great. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I had, I, I, I had, a, I had a good time. Uh, I had a good time doing that. So this introduction you worked on with him, can I, and I don't know how much you can share publicly. And if you're like, ah, I can't really speak into that. Is it primarily N.T. Wright's pre-written material and you kind of putting it all together, or did he do any fresh writing for it? Are you allowed to say? Oh, it's, it's a bit. Of, it's a bit of both. Uh, okay. The one hand, we've gone through um, Tom's uh, various works. You know, Jesus and the Victory of God, Resurrection of the Son of God, some of his popular level commentaries, and you know, I've gone through all the material and basically fashioned a New Testament introduction out of it. But it hasn't hasn't just been like a cut and paste okay. in a kind of patchy way. We, you know, we, we've systematically worked through everything okay. uh, to give it a nice sense of flow, make it clear, crisp, co- uh, coherent. We've got we've got tons of pictures and huh. tables and charts. It, it, it's it's very pictorial. It's very graphic. Um, one of the good things we've got is like an ongoing conversation between a professor and an American seminary student asking questions it's called emails from the edge so you know <laughs> uh, so the student will say like you know i was reading somewhere like this you know, the, the testimony of josephus to jesus is, is like you know a fake or a forgery like what's up with that you know, there's all those sorts of questions along the way or 
you know, what does the King James Bible mean when it says he did not consider it robbery to keep quality with God? What the heck is robbery going on here? Yeah. Um, so it's got a whole bunch of good things like that. But Tom has also added a lot of unique material to this, particularly in the introduction and the, the, uh, the end of the book. He's really added some good stuff on, uh, on why the New Testament matters and what are the benefits you can get from reading it. So at, at one level, uh, you could say this book is um, Tom Wright's greatest hits all in one volume, uh, put in a, a nice, easy, readable, user-friendly fashion. Uh, it's also got my own little bits and bobs along the way as well, a bit of, you know, a bit of comedy relief, maybe a bit of eye candy on the side, however you want to put it, I don't know. Uh, but then also, also, added, uh, also added to that, uh, we've got something that shows why the New Testament actually matters. And you know, we, we do start a bit of the process of asking the question, well, so what? How is the Gospel of Mark going to affect the way you eat your um, wheat sticks on a Tuesday morning? Yeah. Uh, that type of a thing. Man, I can't wait. I, I, yeah, I literally can't wait to read it. Um, how, how is it? It's probably pretty long, right? What, four or 500 pages? Or? I, think, I, think it's a, I think it's about 800 pages. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so it's, 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 it's meaty. Yeah. It's rigorous. But, I mean, th this is a book I really hope serves a, a generation of students, teachers, pastors. Uh, I think this book is different to every other New Testament introduction that's going around. How, how so? Um, how so? Because there are a lot of good introductions out there. Here's, here's, here's the thing. We, we don't just want to give people more information about the New Testament. Okay? It's not like, here's a bunch of information, a bunch of data for you to you know, roughly remember. We want to change the way people read the New Testament. And we want people to remember that they're reading, you know, they're reading history, they're reading uh, literature, they're reading theology. And, you know, your objective is to take this material and find ways to live it out. And we start giving you a few tips along the way and how to do that. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think that, that that does make it a, a little bit more unique. We do try to bridge the gap between knowledge and application. And we do try to bring all these things together of how of how the New Testament is part of you know, the theological yeah. message, part of the revelation, part of history, but it also has its own unique literary forms. I mean, even at 800 pages, I mean, if any pastor or just thoughtful Christian out there, leader, um, I mean, you, you can get if you just said, hey, I'm going to spend 20 to the year 2020 working through this book. You know, that's just a few pages a week, really. I don't know. I don't, I don't have the math in front yeah. of me. I mean, 20 pages a week, 50 pages a week, whatever. I mean, that, um, that's, that's not that tough. And I think people would just learn tremendously from, from, from an exercise like that. So um, I'm going to, you know what? I'm, yeah, on the spot, I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to spend 2020 work, working through this, which I, because all I read right now is on sexuality and gender. It's, it's actually rare for me to read anything outside of that. But I think it's healthy for me to, to do so. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that on. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you're not just an academic. I mean, you are absolutely a man of the church. Um, mm. you still love Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I say that, but I laugh, but I mean, a lot of people who go through the academic trajectory journey that you and I have to mm. come out on the other side at, you know, I'm 43. I think you're 45, 44. Yeah to still be like passionate about the gospel is actually more rare than people may, may think, or you end up being so cynical or so liberal that you basically yeah. are kind of worth it. But you, you are still, I, I would say a, a very level headed, thoughtful gospel, gospel centered 
evangelical in, in not in the American sense, but in the, in the actual sense of being an, an evangelical. Um, uh, tell us about your church journey. You have gone from being a Baptist to Presbyterian and now an Anglican priest. Is that correct? Yeah. So tell us about that journey. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I did not grow up in a Christian home, you know, growing up, everything I, I knew about Christianity, I learned from Ned Flanders. Um, <laughs> Ned so Flanders. That was, that's pretty much. Uh, so I, I did not have a religious upbringing. Um, it was a little bit, you know, it wasn't too bad. It was a bit dysfunctional. And so when I was, when I was 17, I couldn't get into college. My grades in school were not good enough. So uh, I went and joined the army uh, and I did that for a number of years. And it was while I was in the army, I got you know, invited to church for the first time. And I just assumed all churches were filled with moralizing geriatrics that were afraid somewhere, somehow a young person was having a good time. <laughs> uh, but I went along to a, to a Baptist church, a new church plant. And uh, it was great. The people were very different, um, wonderfully different, supernaturally different. And they shared with me the good news of the gospel. Hmm. And in 1994, I prayed to receive Christ and the world's been a different place ever since. Hmm. So I hung up in some Baptist circles, moved around a bit with the army, got a little bit of a taste for theological education. I initially thought I would you know, maybe train uh, to be an army chaplain, you know, maybe with an academic thing down the line. But as I went through theological college and you know, through seminary, it became clear that my giftings were probably more on the academic side rather than on the um, the, 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 the people skill side. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, I pursued the academic side, got a scholarship to do my doctorate at the University of Queensland, which was great. You know, Jesus and the origin of the Gentile mission. Uh, and had to look for a job. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually got one in a wonderful place in the north of Scotland, uh, Highland Theological College, which is called a great place. Um, had a great time there for five years. Um, met wonderful people like Preston and <laughs> Joey and Nijay and uh, so many other wonderful people I've got to know over the years. Uh, then after that, my mother-in-law threatened to break both of my legs if I didn't bring her daughter and grandchildren back to Australia. <laughs> so I spent a few years. Uh, so when I was in Scotland, I mean, pretty much, there's some good churches there, but you pretty much have to be Presbyterian. Yeah. It's like 10 different types of Presbyterian. Right. Um, so I did that for a bit, and uh, yeah, just hang out with the Presbyterians, and, and they kind of like beat out some of the Baptist stuff out of me too. So I thought, okay, fine, let's baptize babies. Let's get over and done with you know, a bit of covenant theology. You're all children of Abraham. Let's baptize them. Uh, <laughs> so it's a very simplistic way that will probably offend a lot of your listeners. But uh, <laughs> I, you can read a, further details in my evangelical theology book. I've got, I've got a uh, blend of, uh, yeah, um, Pado Baptist and Credo Baptist, or however you want to word it. Uh, but I think the one thing all my listeners have in common is it's, it's not a hill to die on. <laughs> so, yeah, keep yeah. going. So I went back to the Brisbane School of Theology for a while and I attended a Presbyterian church there, which I loved. It's, it's still a great church. But basically, I was becoming a closet Anglophile hmm. uh, because when I was in Scotland, I, I, I found out that F.F. Bruce, you know, he's a famous biblical scholar, he kept two books on his desk, a Greek New Testament and a copy of the Book of Common Prayer. And I thought, well, that was pretty good for F.F. Bruce, so I you know, might give it a try myself. So I started reading the, the Book of Common Prayer and learned to love it. It, it was so biblical. Um, it was a very, it was very Trinitarian mm -hmm. as well, rather than the side of, you know, the Jesus sort of monist sort of worship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Australia, we sing a lot of Hillsong worship, kind of like, you know, Jesus, you're terrific, for you, I'd swim the Pacific. Yeah, baby, yeah, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, yeah, if you've been singing that for a while, the Book of Common Prayer can be rather refreshing in its uh, blatant Trinitarianism. Huh. 
and so I, I wanted to I wanted to move into an Anglican setting. And I got the opportunity when I was invited to join the faculty down here in Melbourne at Ridley College, which you know, when I was able to really cross over uh, and join the Anglican fold. And for me, the best thing about being Anglican is you get to be reformed and Catholic at the same time. Yeah. There's a very strong heritage of the ancient Catholic heritage of the faith. You know, the creeds of the church, the church fathers, the church mothers, that's all part of our heritage but we also embrace the Reformation distinctions uh, about the gospel. And uh, you could argue that the Reformation was the attempt to recapture or to rehearse the uh, apostolicity of the church, the apostolic message of the gospel. So that's why I, I tend to think of um, being Anglican as a type of reformational Catholicism hmm. or Anglicanism uh, at its best, not an authorized, at its best, is what the Catholic Church would look like if it embraced the Reformation hmm. and returned to its apostolic roots. Uh, so uh, that, in short, is uh, why I like being Anglican. And all the cool kids are doing it. You know, Auntie <laughs> John Stott, Alistair McGrath, C.S. Yeah. Lewis. Uh, on the way over, I just listened to your podcast with Tish Warren. Yeah. People are doing it. And if you want to be cool, you should do it too. It's cool. <laughs> You don't have to go to Denver to be cool. To be <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'm still, I mean, I, we, I won't even get into my whole church um, past or present or future, but um, of all the traditional denominations, I've often said that I think Anglican, the Anglican church is probably the most attractive to me um, for various reasons. A lot of what you, what you hit on, I think the flexibility Men in purple. What's Men that? in purple, Preston. There we go. And women in purple too. I just want to hear. I just want to wear that cool collar. Like I just, I feel like I would. People would finally respect me for once. Um, You're sitting there with your neck all exposed. <laughs> an anathema to God. An anathema, Preston. Uh, so are you? Are you? Uh, are you ordained in the Anglican Church? Then you're an Anglican priest. Then is that? Yes, okay. I am. Uh, I am an Anglican priest. That just sounds uh, sexy in 2019. An Anglican priest. It does. Yeah. No, I, I go to places where they call me Father Mike, and yes. it does sound a bit weird. Because I'm mean, in the Anglo-Catholics of our tradition, they they do like the Father Mike. My kids don't even call me Father Preston. Father Mike when I'm pulled over by police, <laughs> and they say, "What's your name, son? You can call me Father Mike." Yeah, uh, that's the only time I pull out that language. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your? Or, so, oh, real quick, you, you mentioned in passing reformed. Would you consider yourself reformed, and what does that mean to you when you say that? Yeah, well, that, that means that means that means so many. Like the word evangelical, it's yeah. a little bit a little bit loaded. Uh, there's different types of reformed. There's um, reformed in the sense of you know the German evangelisch, that means basically um, not Catholic. Yeah, uh, which is a very you know broad meaningless then. Uh, then there's also reformed meaning holding to the sort of Protestant traditional uh, confessions of the Church, you know, Westminster Confession, London Baptist Confession. And then there's the more cultural sense of reformed in the sense of being, you know, vaguely Calvinistic. And then you've got what I call the uh, the viciously reformed people who are very Calvinistic and very, very angry about it uh, for some reason. Um, I mean, you know, this is why I'd, I'd explain my reformedness or my idea of Calvinism is, is basically this question. People suck. They suck in their sins. They are suckiness unto death. And the God who is rich in mercy takes the initiative to save them when they cannot save themselves. 
uh, that is pretty much my Calvinism. The rest is commentary. That's I, I cannot agree with that more. That yeah, that's I consider you know I, I wrote a blog a while back on why I'm lower you know reform but not reform like why I'm lowercase r reform but not capital R reform meaning there's a lot of cultural in particular American mm. baggage baggage yeah baggage that, that comes with that label of being reformed and I I just don't fit in those communities even if on paper we might sign off on. 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10 doctrinal points, just the, 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 me, the manner in which we sign off on those, you know, mine's going to be much more like, yes, this is where I'm at now, but I might not be there next week. Whereas for other people, it's kind of like, this is where I am. And if I'm not here anymore, I might not be a Christian kind of thing, you know, um, which is just ridiculous to me. You, yeah, you, I, mean, I think we need to get away from the idea of reformed basically means holding to the main tenets of the synod of door, you know, the five right. points of Calvinism while having thick glasses, a big beard, a flannelette shirt, and kind of tight jeans and drinking craft beer. Uh, I don't think that's what Calvin had in mind when he was reforming the Church of Geneva. Well, Calvin was a wine drinker too. I think he had what, how many gallons of wine written into his church contract? Oh, his contract, yeah, his annual contract. <laughs> um, wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've also changed on your view of women's, whatever phrase you want to use, women ordination. Um, can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I would describe myself as a, re a recovering misogynist, uh, to put it bluntly. Um, I, I, did, I did not have a good relationship with women growing up. My, my, my mother um, uh, was a very, could be a very kind, loving, and selfless woman. Uh, but sadly, she was also a very angry drunk. Huh. Um, so I, I grew up having a very difficult relationship with my mother. Uh, and then I had a difficult relationship with everyone. I mean, until I was about 20 years old, I was convinced all women hated me uh, because uh, I, I had I pretty much had no female friends. I was kind of like a bit awkward and strange. I did not I didn't have any sisters. Had no real female friends, and uh, which was which was kind of sad because they they looked nice and they had strange curves and they often smelled nice. So it, it was it was kind of sad in that sense. Um, but eventually, I, I developed a few more social skills. Um, eventually met a uh, wonderful uh, a young lady called Naomi who agreed to marry me. Um, <laughs> the secret to longevity of my marriage is making sure that my uh, wife never goes to an optometrist. I just tell her everything. Everyone, everyone sees things blurry up close. And, perfectly. Um, and because I had that kind of, you know, that sort of background, I, I took to a, a real hard uh, complementarianism very quickly and very easily. Um, not, 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 not the kind of, you know, more uh, extreme versions, but a very conservative kind of hyper Grudem sort of complementarianism. Okay. Uh, but but a, a number of things changed my thinking on that. Um, uh, one was, you know, our, I was a part of a very good church, but they, they kind of like banned women leading worship during Bible studies. Wow. Like even like talking with a lady with a guitar leading a few songs of Kumbaya, um, which I'm pretty sure is not what Paul was was worried about yeah and then i went through and read romans 16 and i remember thinking to myself man if, if if paul did not want women preaching then why did he send you know phoebe to deliver this letter uh who's probably the first one not just to deliver it but also to explain what the letter yeah. was about given what we know of letter carriers in antiquity yeah um you know, then you've got the other women you've got um um uh, you've got junior you've got mary all the co-workers they're using the same language he uses to describe uh, Timothy and Titus. I was convinced that 1 Timothy 2 isn't a paid text. I think, you know, women will be saved through childbirth. 
Um, I think that's echoing something of the heresy in Ephesus. It's quite specific. So I didn't see in uh, in 1 Timothy 2 a, a broad blanket prohibition of women teaching men always and forever. I think this is rooted in the particular context of mm. Ephesus. Uh, if not, then I don't know how to make sense of the rest of, of Paul's writings about women and his co-workers. So I, I came to uh, the conviction that women can participate in the didactic life of the church. They can lead the teaching life of the church and they can serve in the highest positions of ministry in the church. In fact, I, I wrote a, a, a kind of set out a case for this in a short little booklet, um, which I think has got a catchy title called Bourgeois Babes, Bossy Wives and Bobby Haircuts. Um, <laughs> a, case for, a, a case for gender equality in ministry. Uh, yeah, that, it, so, mate, if you want to buy a book that's got the word babes in it, this is the one to buy. This is the one. This is the one book about babes. Your wife won't mind you buying. Or bossy wives. Uh, so it's is it a, it's an ebook published by Zondervan? Is that correct, or is it an actual paper book? Well, it's both. Oh, it it's is. Both. Okay. You can get it as an ebook, but it's also available as like a little booklet. And that's pretty much where I set out the case. And, and I, I I keep getting emails from people who have read that. A lot of people have read that book. It's only, it's only like seven thousand words or something. It's, it's like okay. an extended essay. Uh, but a lot of people have written to me saying, wow, this book was you know, life changing for me. Um, seeing how you can you can maintain a very high view of the scripture, very rigorous biblical interpretation. Yeah. Um, but believe that that, you know, spiritual gifts do not come in pink and blue. You know, the, uh, the yeah. spirit's been poured on all flesh and our sons and daughters will prophesy. Yeah. And, and I would say probably my, my biggest critique of, uh, of complementarianism uh, these days would be this, that the, the so-called biblical, ma the biblical manhood and womanhood is really a post-World War II reflection of white middle-class suburban culture. Interesting. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, like in, in, you know, I talk to people in, I've got students from Sudan from Asia, other parts of the world, and the idea that dad goes to work, mom stays at home, looks after the kids. That only works in a, in a very um, affluent and uh, consumerist society. Everywhere else, mum and dad works. You know, maybe mum works for the government or dad works on the farm or that sort of thing. You know, grandma's still at home. You know, and grandma may be called on the shots because you're living in a matriarchal culture or something like that. Um, you know that there is just a, a, fi, a, a far wider assortment of, of cultures than uh, the, the one that we live in, and you know, you've got to think, well, how how do the household codes relate to that context? Right. Um, you know, uh, like a China is very easy. China is a, is a very egalitarian culture in some ways, uh, which it's absorbed in various ways. So you know, trying to get a real hardcore complementarians on some people from from certain parts of China is, is very difficult. It does not resonate since in their view you know women hold up half the sky uh, that kind of a thing so yeah I, I became disenchanted with i mean at, yeah, at the same time there's there's different types of complementarian as well we shouldn't pitch and hold them yeah all in the same point and you know i've got colleagues and friends who are complementarian and we have a few good discussions here and there but i think it's it is possible even in a seminary to have different views about um the roles and qualifications of the ministry and still get along with each other no that's so good i often you know, and I've said this so many times in the podcast, I don't want to get into it, but I mean, I'm, I'm officially pleading the fifth. I, I, that's American phrase, I guess. I'm sure you know, but like, I don't, I was raised like you, heavy complementarian, didn't never mm. had the personal disdain for women. In fact, 
I did deep down, I did kind of find it odd and very patriarchal that men were kind of running the show, but I never really questioned it just because I respected everybody. And I, you know, first Timothy too, whatever long story short, I'm just, I, I'm right now. There's so many people I, I, well, I, I just, I, I haven't done the work to know where I, I land, but I often tell people the fact that people like Michael Bird and NT Wright and of several others who are so biblically centered, who I see eye to eye on theologically on so many levels. Um, the fact that they are not no longer complementarian or egalitarian, whatever phrase you want to use, non-hierarchical complementarian. One of my friend, one of my friends uses that, that to me, I'm like, okay, there, there, I must be, there must be something to the egalitarian view that I haven't seen yet. So I'm, I'm officially like, I, I'm not sure where I'm going to land. I need some space in my life to study it out. I want to, yeah, I want to, I haven't read your book. I've seen it since it came out and I've always like eyed it and just haven't taken the time to read it. So I'm going to take the time to read that one as well. So there's two Michael Bird books now that I have publicly agreed to read in the next year or so. So, um, yeah, maybe you can, uh, so here, I guess on, on the egalitarian side to me, and I hate saying this, but just aside from scripture, it makes zero sense why only men would be qualified or called or able to serve in positions of leadership. Even if, and this is going to spill into gender studies or whatever, even if males stereotypically or generally are more hardwired at being qualified for leadership kind of roles. Any mm-hmm. psychologist worth his or her salt is going to say that's still a generality. There are still, yes, even if men are generally more emotionally stable than women, yes, even though men don't experience, you know, a period and, and that plays with your emotions. Yes, even though there are all these generalities, it's they're not absolutes. There are still mm-hmm. some men that are, would, exhibit more typically feminine emotional characteristics, whatever. And there are some women that would exhibit some typically masculine characteristics. So it doesn't make sense to me to make a categorical declaration that all women hundred percent always are not qualified or called to leadership. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Now I'm still, I'm still a biblicist to where if the Bible says it, I'll believe it and go with it. But it just, it doesn't make sense that all females would be excluded. It might make sense that 70% of leaders might, might be male. I'm okay with that. I respect sex differences. It doesn't make sense that 100% would. So that would be my, my one major concern with the com- complementarian position. Um, on the flip side, uh, on the, the arguments, I often hear arguments for egalitarian or women's ordination begin with something like, well, I used to be a complementarian, but then I met a woman who was an amazing preacher and teacher and theologian, and therefore it kind of changed my view. I'm like, okay, I... I I see that, but that's not technically a scriptural argument. In fact, that's why so many Christians are affirming of same-sex relationships now. Well, I used to be a a firm traditional marriage, but then I met a bunch of gay couples that were amazing. And now, you know, it's like, okay, I I get the power of that, but that's not really a scriptural argument. Um, And also it, it does. So respond to this. And I really want you to convince me otherwise. Jesus especially Jesus seemed to push back against the patriarchal culture, elevating women. I mean, Luke eight with, with, you know, being supported by women and the Mary and Martha and on and on it goes. And yeah, Paul and Phoebe, as you mentioned, and all these others, the new Testament doesn't seem to 
shrink back against pushing back against the patriarchal culture. Why is it then that we still have all male apostles? And I would say we still have, and you might throw in Junia and we can go there and we, but, and we still have no, can I say this and critique me? No clear example of a female in a, elder or pastoral or teaching role in a local church context it, yep. aside from female prophets. And we're not, I'm not sure where they would fit in, yep. but you have Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus, not, um, you know, Carol or Mary or and, and these clearly yep. have male, all male. Why don't we have six female apostles? Even if you take junior, it's like, okay, why don't we have six juniors or, you know, um, there still yeah. does seem to be a trajectory a trajectory of of male leaders in the leaders in the sense of what we're talking about today of like occupying a, a, the office of eldership or or being yeah. a pastor. I mean, I think the issue is Preston. When we look at the New Testament and the fir- first Christians, we want to know why they weren't more like us. Why isn't Jesus traveling around preaching smash the patriarchy? <laughs> hashtag Slave Lives Matter. Um, <laughs> occupy Rome. You know, we, we, we want them to be just like us and for our concerns to be their concerns, our priorities to be their priorities. Um, so we're kind of saying, how come they were not like us? Because obviously we are the normal Christians. They, they were just like the John the Baptist preparing the way for us, <laughs> uh, that type of thing. Uh, we've got to remember that you know, they're, they're dealing with faith, God, the realities, the imperatives of their world as they understood it. Uh, and we look back and like, well, how could you like treat slavery as if it was like a normal thing how can you talk about patriarchy as if it's if it's normal that was the only world they knew and they may not have conceived of another world and god speaks into that world into that context with the concerns uh, that they had now i i do think you see things that start to change the trajectory of things i think we see that with paul and slavery i mean paul as i've said paul was no william wilberforce but without Paul, I don't think we would have had William Wilberforce. Mm. You know, um, Paul was—I wouldn't call um, you know Paul a, a kind of you know, a radical feminist. But as anyone can tell you, uh, Tom Holland's recent book, Dominion, is a lot of what we believe on on white values in our world today goes back to people like the Apostle Paul. Okay, some of the Christ is neither, you know or free male and female, a lot of this goes back and, and what happens as a result of this slowly being absorbed into a, an entire civilization yeah. so I, I don't think we, we should expect that they're going to have the complete package that we have after 2000 years of germination okay. all there at the embryonic uh, stages so I'm not so much concerned how come the whole the, the, the later package is not there at the beginning that things already happened there. I would push back a little bit on your uh, presence. Say, look, they did have they did have female prophets. Yeah. Uh, there are also women leading Christian households, like Chloe in one Corinthians, Nympha in in. in, in hey, Mike, 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 real about. real quick. Um, it's whenever you, whenever you turn your face away, I lose your voice. So just oh, okay, say, sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I picked up on where where the glitch is. Yeah. So just okay. Do I need to say anything? Uh, so go back. So, so Chloe, women leading households. Yeah. Yep. 
So uh, I would push back a bit and say, no, we do have women leaders. We have female prophets. We have uh, female leaders like Chloe in Corinth, uh, Nympha in, in, in Colossae, and all these various housework, these other workers that Paul nominates in Romans 16 and in Philippians 4 uh, and the like. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do see women involved. And if house churches were kind of coterminous with households, I think we have the reality of women household leaders. Now, Paul doesn't uh, come out and say that because he didn't have to. It was just assumed it was well known. So that's, I guess, I, uh, here's what I don't know. I, I, and then we can also assume, I think, Lydia in Philippians 16, right? Um, probably yeah. Yeah. a wealthy woman. I've always thought that those women household who, who were opening up their homes, these wealthy women who are opening up their homes to, for believers to gather, that that doesn't necessarily mean that they were leading um, the house church in a didactic pastoral role. I, I've often, I've always assumed that yes, a woman could certainly, a wealthy woman could open up her house, have people gather, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's overseeing that household gathering in the first Timothy three kind of sense. Am I wrong in that assumption? Is that a, is that a leap you're, is that a valid leap you're making, but a leap nonetheless, or is there evidence that no, if you actually own the home or believe you're meeting, you are by definition also leading that, that congregation. Yeah. Well, at one level, I have to say there are some blanks in the gaps here mm -hmm. that we don't know, but let, let me compare two examples. Okay. We know that Paul writes to Philemon, and I think his, his, his uh, was it wife Apphia or sister Apphia? And then he refers to the dude um, uh, Archippus. Yeah. Okay. Now, the, the impression you get is Philemon is the patron and Archippus is kind of like the pastoral leader in that house church. Okay. Okay. That's it. So that's where there is a difference between the patron and you might say the pastoral leader. Okay. Although it's a, it's a kind of, you know, a different relationship. However, when Paul mentions these women, uh, like Chloe and also, uh, and also Nympha, he doesn't mention, and oh, and so-and-so, who's the pastoral leader there. Ah. He doesn't mention an Archippus-type figure. He just mentions Nympha. He just mentions Chloe. And um, he, he doesn't mention and who the pastoral leader, like an Archippus figure. So that would suggest to me that they probably were uh, a leader of some type in, in that church or a senior leader. Maybe not the only one, but they're the one person that he mentioned. And I think their role went more than just setting up the chairs um, in the nice linium and putting out the flowers. Um, I think they had some degree of some degree of authority over that, which is why Paul mentions them. Paul mentions the people, who are those who have the authority, not just those in the teaching role, those who, are, who have an authority and a responsibility for what's going on in the house church. That's so if the household host, whatever was not the leader, then Paul probably would have identified both the household host and the leader. But if he doesn't distinguish yeah. between those two, and we do have evidence where he does distinguish yeah. between the person who owns the house, opens the doors versus the one who that, okay, that's see, that's, that's, it's these kind of arguments that I want to wrestle with. I, um, because I, I mean, to be honest, I desperately want to be fully and passionately egalitarian. <laughs> it, it makes more sense to me, and yet I am enough of a biblicist that I don't want to just do so because of non—not unbiblical, but non-biblical kind of 
reasons. I mean, just it doesn't again, it doesn't make sense that all women categorically 100% would be excluded from teaching roles, even if the majority might be men, maybe. Um, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. Um, so for, I mean, first Corinthians 14 is never, well, it's first Corinthians 14 is an issue for everybody. Women be silent in yeah. churches. Go ask your husband. So what do the single women do literally silent? Like, can they not pray out loud? Can they not raise their hand and ask a question? I mean, it's just as, as it's, it's a bizarre verse. So I don't think conservatives or complementarians can just take that as proof, whatever. So really it does come yeah. down to, in my mind, first Timothy two, and then also the kind of, well, I need to rethink the whole household thing, but the, the, the lack of crystal clear evidence that there were women in a didactic kind of authoritative teaching role. Um, but then uh, yeah, female prophets to me, I even asked Tom Schreiner once I said, okay, Tom, g- give me, what do you think is the best argument for the egalitarian position? As you, you and I both know, I mean, he's passionate, passionately mm. complementarian. And he immediately says female prophets. And he, he was very honest. He's like, we don't know what to do with that. Like, we have to say that that's not an authoritative role. But he kind of said, you know, with a glimmer and a twinkle in his eye, like a prophet is not authoritative. Like that, that's a tough one for us, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a, when, when my bourgeois babes book, can it sounds so dodgy, doesn't it? When my bourgeois babes book, can <laughs> well, there's two types of prophecy. There's kind of like, you know, Isaiah prophecy. And then there's what's called, he called it congregationally based suggestions. So he said there's two types of prophecy. There's you know real good proper prophecy. Yeah. And then there's the second type of prophecy, congregationally based suggestions. Because if women can do it, it obviously can't be that important. Oh god. That was, ba- that was is basically that, is that the argument? That's horrible. That was his argument. Well, there must be a different type of prophecy because if women can do it, it can't be all that important. That's the most circular thing I've ever heard. All right, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, wow. that's what it was. Um Oh my God. Okay. So let's, uh, we have a few more minutes, but, uh, so you're, you're, uh, obviously Australian. You live, you've lived in and ministered in the UK. You've spent a lot of time in, in the U S, um, teaching and speaking and preaching and so on. Give us an outsider's perspective on American evangelicalism. And I, I'm going to leave oh, that as yeah. broad, as broad as it sounds, because I want you to take any kind of you know, uh, uh, approaches you want. When, when you think of American evangelicalism from an outsider, Jesus loving gospel centered, biblical scholar perspective, what would you want to say to my audience who is, let's just say 80% American evangelical? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I, I, I love America. I think America's great. Uh, it's the land that invented Chick-fil-A. Uh, so I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm a big, uh, a big American fan. Um, uh, I, I would say American evangelicalism, uh, at one level, it is so broad as to be practically meaningless. Huh. Um, I have to explain to Australians that um, everything they know about evangelicalism is pretty much wrong. It's, it's not the caricature and the stereotype they give. Um, American evangelicalism has the best and the worst of American religious culture. So that they've got they've got Preston Sprinkles and Joey Dodson's, or is it Joey Dodson and Preston Sprinkle? I can't remember which one's the bad one. Um, uh, uh, they, they've got they've got the, they've got the best and the worst of everything in abundance. Um, I would say one thing is, uh, I think Americans need uh, to be able to discern better what does it mean to be Christian. And what does it mean to be American? In other words, I, I find them not very good at distinguishing between what is Christian 
and what is American. Mm. And you know, I, I, I become, I'm never more than aware of this when I'm discussing two issues with Americans, which is healthcare and gun control. Um, not that I want to offend everyone, but let me, let me put this to you. Every Western democracy from Norway to New Zealand has universal health care for its citizens, except for the wealthiest nation on earth. Um, now, I'm not going to, I mean, health care is complex. The American system as it exists complex. Uh, but, you know, the idea that it's just inherently wrong to have a universal health care. Uh, Christians in, in Norway, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, no one else thinks that. It's only um, you people. Um, and yeah, the same on the gun stuff. Like I understand uh, the role of guns in American culture going back to the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the war of independence. I understand, you know, you've got your second amendment, so it's got a particular legal thing, you know, the right to bear arms for militias. You've got a land border with Mexico and there is a lot of um, bad hombres um, coming across the border. So I understand part of that. But who wants to live in a country where you have a mass shooting like every week? Yeah. Um, and who needs an AR-15 to go home? I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm not some ultra-left-wing tree-hugging femo-Nazi from Yale. I'm a military man, okay? Um, you know, I, I'm, you know I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I, well, actually, here's why, I'm, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist. I, I, I believe there is a place okay. for lethal force, uh, uh, sadly, in, in this world. Uh, but I don't know why anyone needs to have an AR-15. Hmm. Yeah. That type of a thing. Um, whether it's hunting or protection, I think a bolt action rifle or a shotgun will kind of do the job. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, so I, I just look at America and I think some of these issues, I think, wow, you people are strange and you, you think we're the crazy ones um, <laughs> type of thing. So that there's some issues like that. Um, I think the, I think America is now more polarized than ever before. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it is, it is, it, it's vitriol violent. I mean, there seems to be a lot of revenge fantasy going on. You know, we want to get them. We're going to do this. We're going to get them. And I don't know what's going to happen. I, I just hope we can find a, a centralist uh, American president, you know, Republican or Democrat, someone who can bring people together um, and try, you know, create connections and, and coalitions of like-minded people. And, um, you know, America needs to do what Paul says in Romans 14, 19. And this is, I think this is true of evangelicalism, but also America. We need to do the things that make for peace and mutual encouragement. Mm -hmm. um, you, so you definitely need a, a, a president like that. Whereas I think a lot of people want a kind of what I call the Luke 19, 27 president. Um, you know, as for those who did not want me to reign over them, bring them before me and slaughter them. Um, <laughs> You know, a lot of people want a president as that is his motto, Luke nineteen twenty seven. But I think we need more like a Romans fourteen nineteen president uh, in the future. Um, but you know, I, I love my American friends. I always have a great time when I go to America, and uh, there is uh, there is power, power, wonder working power in the American evangelical church. Mike, that's a great word to end on. Thanks so much for being on the show. Um, one of these days, we got to hang out in person. I spent five weeks at your home in Australia, sans Michael Bird. Uh, and uh, yeah. And my house still smells like Budweiser and Old Spice. <laughs> I, I, you know, I try to replenish uh, all the wine that I drank when I was at your house. I don't think I did so well on the espresso. Uh, machine uh because i pretty much oh, i could not care less i mean i i mean i don't know Kristen, but i hate coffee i despise oh coffee. really I, yeah my feeling 
my feelings about coffee are very similar to how Nancy Pelosi feels about Donald Trump. I mean, <laughs> I, I really, do, I will not kiss my wife after she's had coffee. Oh, uh, well, tell Naomi I'm sorry for drinking all our, we, we had plans to replenish and then we went out the night before and I, I just specifically remember that stores were not open. There was some bank holiday or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh. I, busted your ankle up real bad as well. Oh gosh. I think, so right out, yeah, your neighborhood, as you come out of your, your street, if you turn right and then another right and then the main road on the left, I forget that road. What's that road? Um, uh, George's Road. Yes, George's. About a quarter mile down, um, there's a little bus stop and so there's a shadow on the curb right there, which hid the curb and I stepped off it, rolled my ankle both ways. I still, a, a year and a half later, um, it's like 80%. I trashed oh, wow. it. Trash. The doctor said he's never seen an ankle injury so bad from just stepping off a curb on a jog. So anyway, oh, wow. fun memories in Australia. Oh. <laughs> so let me get you came to Australia and it wasn't the jellyfish, the crocodiles, the snakes or the dingoes. It was the bus stop. <laughs> it was the it was the curb. Put a travel warning. Now, if oh, you're American tourists, oh, you get word. the dingoes, beware of the bus stops. Those things are a killer. <laughs> the shadows on the bus stops. They will cripple you. They will cripple you. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Uh, many blessings on your life, your ministry, and especially your, your, your publishing output. I hope you keep cranking out as many books as you've been doing. Thank you, Preston. It's always good to connect with a, with a great buddy. All right. Take care, man.